The first step in editing your film is to get rid of your waste footage. I'm working in the basement of the NYU Film School on one of the ancient Moviola editing machines, which are reserved for lowly undergraduates and visiting students like me. These machines are famous for grabbing a sprocket and tearing to shreds 30 feet of film at a go. I hang my surviving shots on tiny hooks around the editing room. At night, I can feel the cool breezes drifting through the cracks in the window frames, and I listen to the gentle rustle of hundreds of strips of film imprinted with my images as they lift on quiet currents of air. These are the only calm moments in my life. I am far behind on my production schedule, but I know I'm going to finish this film because I have to finish this film. I skip my other classes and take two more incomplete so I can put in 14 hours of editing every day. Get ready, because we're going to watch a film by one of my former students. NYU bankrolled his first film on my say-so, and we lost every penny, but we took a chance. And today, Marty Scorsese is the best director in the world. Watch this film. Every frame is life and death. Marty Scorsese's film is about life in Hell's Kitchen, about violent friends helping and betraying each other. I wish, I wish there had been more violence in my life. Something catastrophic which I could now reenact. Some adversity I had overcome. That elusive subject which would belong only to me, but which would prove more fitting for a high-stakes movie than indecision and anxiety. The second round of films are coming in, and occasionally Melek likes something. That's good. I wanted to know if she was going to sleep with him or if she was going to kill him. You're paying attention. I've been shooting with that silent Bolex, but now I realize that select sequences have to look as if they had been shot in sync sound, so I'm laying in the soundtrack artificially. To make the picture and the audio match up, I have to cut the sound tape into 24ths of a second and glue the little pieces together in precisely the proper order. And unlike film with its series of tiny photos, my snippets of sound tape are brown confetti. They all look exactly the same. To sink a walk down the hall, complete with footsteps and a board creaking, takes me 13 hours. Melek announces that on May 26th we will have Amnesty Day. Anyone who has not shown their film yet can bring it into a marathon screening, and the film will be treated as if it had been turned in on time, so long as it is accompanied by its storyboard. I am uplifted by this opportunity. And you know, it's a remarkable coincidence, unless it's not a coincidence, because Melek has chosen my 21st birthday as the day to offer me redemption. Now, I don't actually like alcohol, and I missed Vietnam, but Melek's largesse is going to lend this turning point in my life some meaning, because that's the day I will officially take my place in the world as a filmmaker. My film is far from done, and I know that I'm in trouble. So I bite the bullet, and I go to Melek. I've been trimming for months, and my movie is still 16 minutes long. Help me. I don't look at incomplete work. Just give me some advice. Cut your losses, kid. I need to shorten my film, but when I glue the whole thing together, I discovered there are shots missing. My film doesn't make any sense. So that's why I needed a storyboard, and that's what they meant by continuity. 
I called Jackie Fine for one day of additional filming, and instead of my nice, clean-cut friend, he shows up with a beard and long hair, and he's so pissed off at me, he won't even consider cutting his hair or shaving, and he won't even talk to me between takes. I dress him in the same lumberjack shirt, and I pray that the audience will be looking at the plaid pattern and not at his face, and they will recognize that he is supposed to be the same character from the earlier footage, my surrogate self. But how likely is that? May 26th is coming, and I have to finish this film. I am going to finish this film because I have no choice. But there is no chance I will succeed if I continue to work on these ancient Moviola editing destroyers. So I move to the Editing Zone, a professional editing room on 44th Street and 9th Avenue, and I convince the owner, a middle-aged Jewish man who takes pity on me, to let me come in at night and for half price to use the editing machines which have already been rented during the day. He gives me my own key. The Editing Zone is wall-to-wall Steenbecks. These are state-of-the-art, flat editing tables which do not chew, rip, or mutilate footage. There are a dozen monitors pushed together, so sometimes when I come in, there are people still working, and I hear jungle screeches and laugh tracks and rich baritone narration and breathless orgasms. Yes, there are porn men there, and they're wearing dark suits, and they're right next to the nature documentary folks in their T-shirts, but they're all talking shop, and the conversation is much the same. In the late hours of the night, the last straggling editor departs, and the tables go silent. And after they're gone, I move around the room and watch their films. They are far more professional than mine, but they're encouraging in the roughness of their rough cut. And I see that every one of our films will get faster and slicker on these state-of-the-art Steenbecks, but not one millimeter deeper. At 4.30 in the morning, I try to go home, but the security guard will not let me out of the building. He says I'll never make it to the 7th Avenue subway alive. So I camp out in the editing zone, sleeping in the storage room, working all night, every night, until May 26th, Amnesty Day, my 21st birthday. At 7.30 in the morning, I take a taxi from the editing zone to my class at NYU. There are 30 films scheduled for this Hail Mary screening. We are in our long screening room with its rake stadium seating that leads up to the projection booth in the back, Friends recruited for these student films are filling the room. It's stuffy. There's no air conditioning. And every seat is taken. And even every step along the walls is occupied. You can tell the filmmakers from the guests by the dark, deep circles under our eyes and the, the jittery despair, the, uh, the mixture of sweat, adrenaline, and terror wafting off our unwashed bodies. I have a long film, the longest film of the day. It's too long, I know. But I have a lot of friends who've been wondering if the nights they sacrificed for my movie were worth it. I ask Melek if I can screen my film first so that all my friends can go home and make space for other people to come in. And for the first time all year, Melek says to me, Okay, kid. I climb up into the projection booth. The familiar faces of my cast members pop out like bursts of color scattered among a terrifyingly large audience of strangers. And then I spot Jackie Fine in the doorway. He's late, and now he's stuck in a crowd who can't get through. Jackie's not going to be able to see anything from there. Once I close the door to the projection booth, it becomes soundproof. I'm going to turn on the monitor so I can hear what it sounds like out in the hall. 
but for this moment, I am in total and silent isolation, and this feels entirely appropriate. The lights dim, there's silence. The hum of the motors, the projection beam. I flip the forward switch, and my life as a filmmaker begins. There are shadowy figures, a tableau of Jackie's housemates, strategically placed in a dimly lit living room, so as they stare robotically in different directions, no two make eye contact. And there's Jackie, my celluloid self, in the plaid logging shirt. He can't get anyone's attention in this room, so he leaves the apathetic automatons in exasperation. Now, the camera follows him down a hallway, and you can tell that Jackie is searching by the way he cranes his neck and goggles his eyes, as if he is scanning the whitewashed Manhattan corridors for his purpose in life. You see, my film is a journey. It's my search for answers, for the puzzle pieces of a meaningful life. But on screen, you see Jackie's face twist up artificially, in case the viewer has not sensed his restless anxiety, his features contort again. My God, the acting, the acting is atrocious. This is unwatchable. How have I not noticed this until now? The boards creak. Those are the delicious creaking sounds that are perfectly synced to his footsteps, a fact the viewers don't even notice, because why should they notice it? How could they know it took me days to simulate what I might have achieved in one minute had I reserved a sync sound camera? My famous ladder scene has Jackie laboring up the wooden slats to reach the hidden attic in my parents' home. Each time he nears the top, he finds himself at the bottom again, and his breathing intensifies. His sweat pours out, and there's cantorial music soaring in the background. No one but me will know that the voice belongs to my cantor who trained me for my bar mitzvah, just as no one but me will recognize that the clean-cut young man who reaches the top of the ladder and the hippie scene in the next shot are supposed to be the same person, unless, 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 please God, unless the viewers are focusing on the plaid pattern of his lumberjack shirt. I refocus my brain to watch the next sequence, in which Jackie's housemate Shirley is painting in gouache, and her brushstrokes are perfectly timed to Rimsky-Korsakov's Scheherazade. Oh my God, it took me weeks to get that effect. At the end of this section, Jackie accepts a painting from her, thereby embracing his mission to become an artist. That's beautiful. But wait! As Jackie nods in assent, he's, he's nodding too vigorously. This is not acting. It's forced. It's phony. And the paintings, God help me, the paintings are stick figures. Doesn't he see that? Didn't I see that? He has become an artist of the awful. No, 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 no. He's a hippie again. And he's watching a bank of televisions playing the outro music from the Flintstones just as the word knowledge flickers across all of those screens. And these televisions represent pop culture, which he, which I, can't survive without despite our best pretensions. And each television set is extinguished in sequence, leaving our hippie in darkness. And oh no, he's flipped back to clean-cut Jackie again, and now he awkwardly lugs this amalgamation of symbolic props, his television along with his books and his painting and his talit, his intellectual, his artistic, his spiritual, his pop culture selves, all of them. He's taking them back to his starting point when... I want to cry. He's he's a hippie again. But worse, the heavy breathing on the soundtrack is now so thunderous that the audience reads not the exertion of existential struggle, but an oddly timed orgasm. The shadowy figures from the opening scene are now in full light, 
and they join hands and reach out to him as an Israeli pop song, You and I, We Will Change the World, plays. And Jackie stretches his hand to join them, but the music is suddenly cut as the young man falls down and down and down. But voila! Close up, on another hand grabbing his hand. Blackout. The film is over. Will they understand it? Will they like it? Maybe. Maybe. And Melik, oh, please, God. Lights on in the screening hall. I wobble out of the projection booth, dizzy and exhausted. There is no applause, not a clap. It is a noiseless vacuum. My classmates are invited to respond. One student praises my attempt to make the semiotic subtext explicit, and another asks if the long and short-haired men are supposed to know each other. Melek remains impassive, but when he sizes me up through his thick glasses, he focuses so directly, it feels like a dollying zoom with his face flying in at me until it fills the giant screen of my exposed soul. This is just the kind of film I hate. I hate the idea. The acting stinks. The lighting is pretentious. And I want to kill that girl painting those god-awful paintings. I don't give a damn about the hairy bastard or the short-haired idiot because neither one of them is a goddamn character. It's symbolic bullshit with no feeling, no life, with nothing at stake. This is not a film a man should make. And on top of everything else, it's more than 10 fucking minutes long. My eyes are glued to Melek even as I leave this world of sentient beings. I know I'm visible, but I feel like dust. My friends slink away, vanishing from the sight of the disaster. I feel terrifically sick. The all-nighter I've been pulling for two months hits me, and I cramp into a twisted wad of discard footage. Everything is at stake in my head. Nothing is at stake on the screen. I hate Melek. I wish Melek was dead. I want more than anything to go home and sleep, but I have to stay and watch everybody else's film since they've watched mine. And this is a six-hour marathon. Oh, and there's one more thing. I have to wait until class is over so I can tell Melek I didn't finish my storyboard. The semester is over, but I have ten days until grades go in. I still can't sleep, but absent adrenaline, I am drained. So feeble I can't do any work. Melek's critique has been looped to run inside my head forever. I would like to tear out this footage, but there's no moviola shredder in my brain. I sit in the basement of my parents' house where I can't hear the television. The lawn green ping-pong table serves as my desk as I attempt to create my storyboard. Now, this is not a technically difficult exercise. I simply have to draw pictures of shots I have seen thousands of times. But I am overpowered by Sartrean nausea at each square of the comic strip, by Polanski-like repulsion at each lift of the pencil. In place of a deeply felt expression of my exhausting personal searches or a story with an iota of drama, I have filmed a symbolic equation, a rebus, French wallpaper with obscure Jewish references. I have no lifeblood left. After each tiny cartoon, I am paralyzed for hours. 
On the ninth day, I hold my breath to ignore the overpowering stench of my failure, and I sketch one frame from each segment of the film. I ascend from the basement and take the bus to the subway into the city. I am determined to give the storyboard to Melek personally. Both of us will know it's an act of forgery, but at least it'll show my willingness to comply with procedures. I step into Melek's office and I hold out my work. Here's my my storyboard. Too late! I sent in your grade yesterday. Don't worry, you passed. Don't you want to see it? Wake up, kid! It's over! My senior year of college. I load up my brother's car with my incompletes and I drive back to Brown University. I bring my film for flagellation and inspiration. It is, after all, complete. The first day of the semester, I am pushing my suitcases across the university green on a handcart when one of them tumbles off. Loose pages begin to fly and I dash after them. An older man has witnessed my slapstick, and he has the good sense to close the suitcase so my papers will stop feeding the wind. You are a senior now? Professor Globus asks me. How have you been doing? Yes, is all I can manage to say. I am terrified that he will notice that he's been helping me capture my incomplete for his course, Existentialism and Urban Alienation. He seems to understand that I have exhausted my capacity for speech. I'm so sorry we did not have a chance to study together again, but there are still two semesters left if you retain an interest in philosophy. He snaps his suitcase shut and starts to walk off with it. I will carry this for you, just as you helped me once. I push my cart after him to his office. I make light of my film school debacle and attempt to redirect the conversation to a more philosophical note, say, the tension between real life and the imagination. That would be here, he says, withdrawing a volume of the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. He opens it to the entry on phenomenology and plops it down on my lap. I am much too conscious of being observed to make sense of anything— But when I force my eyes down to simulate the act of reading, I notice his italicized name, Richard Globus, at the bottom of the page. It's never occurred to me before this moment that an encyclopedia is a bunch of articles written by specific people. I was considered quite the expert in phenomenology, so it was disconcerting after years of writing and conferences and self-effacing self-promotion when I came to the conclusion that phenomenology was a bunch of twaddle. I laugh. I don't remember when I laughed last. I got my job here when they were advertising for a lecturer in existentialism, a subject I had never heard of. It was just after the war, and I so much wanted to stay in this country. I have never forgiven Switzerland for remaining neutral. So I read every existentialism tract I could find in German and French, and I bluffed, or do you say blustered, my way through my interview. I have happily come over the years to believe in my topic. I decide on the spot that I do not want to think about what is real and what is imagination. I want to know why society is so screwed up. Ah, we will study Marxism together. He informs me that this is not one of the courses he's teaching this year, but he can guide me through an independent study. He says nothing, not one word, 
about the story I owe him for my incomplete. My new goal for senior year is to cut my losses. Rather than trying to figure out what to be in life, I will finish my incompletes, get some sleep, and study Marx with Professor Globus. We meet every two weeks, and I discuss the few pages I have managed to trudge through. I never get as far as I plan, but he doesn't complain, and still, no mention of my incompletes. I finish my old paper on George Eliot's The Mill on the Floss, but when my professor returns the paper with a B-plus after several months, and no comments, I acknowledge the devastating truth that this work is no better than it would have been had I completed it years before on time. I work throughout the semester to complete the rest of my incompletes, and I send them in, beginning to grasp that it is torture for my teachers to receive these assignments long after they were due. I try to stick to my new goal, but I curse myself for lacking a plan. And then a deep kind of panic sets in. I have not written my paper for Marxism, and my college career will end in a number of days, and I've sworn that I will never leave anything incomplete again in my life. And if I have incompletes, I won't graduate. What will my parents think of that? I have to talk to somebody I know. I have to talk to Professor Globus. Do you feel this anxiety all of the time? When I don't sleep, I worry about the world and how to fix it and what I'm going to do with my life. (laughs) So do I. I am, after all, a refugee. I knew it. The wisdom born of suffering. Not from Hitler. From complacency. Don't stay up all night worrying. You'll only make yourself sick. Now tell me, do you feel the need to write a paper for our independent study on Marxism? I need something to show for the course, don't I? To show whom? I don't know. Have you read important writing and wrestled with ideas in a meaningful manner? Yes, I think so. Have you learned something you didn't know before? Yes. What more should one expect from a college course? It's enough for me if it's enough for you. It is enough. At long last, I unpack my final suitcase. Damn, it was blue again. For once, Henry wanted to wake up in time for sunrise, not find himself clinging to his 14th wind before falling asleep. Henry watched the sky change color, and he discovered that he could not think his way to the future, that not having a plan might be his way of living. For now... Henry was too tired to think, and finally, without thinking, Henry fell asleep. May 26th, my 22nd birthday, two days before graduation. I go up Hope Street on College Hill in Providence, Rhode Island, to the Brown University Philosophy Building. To finish the last incomplete of my undergraduate career, I give my favorite teacher, Professor Richard Globus, my story. Sleepless in the City, The Saga of Henry Shulman, Part 1. The Incomplete Life of a Filmmaker was written and performed by Don Futterman with engineering and sound design by Gizem Ozdemir and Itai Shelem. The Incomplete Life of a Filmmaker was recorded and produced at the TLV1 Studios in Tel Aviv.